This is The Guardian. Today, they were accused of witchcraft, but they were just ordinary women. Will Scotland pardon them? There's only one known grave of a condemned witch in Scotland. It belongs to Lilius Aidy. Lilius Aidy was a woman who lived in a small village in Fife called Toryburn, and she was accused of witchcraft in 1704. And Lilius, we think, is quite an old lady. Her sight's failing. She's maybe not as healthy as she, she might have been. We think Lilius is widowed. She was accused by some other women locally of being a witch. She was taken in, she was questioned over several days. After being interrogated and tortured, Lilius confessed. But records show that when asked to name other women, she refused. So when people were saying, you were at a witch's meeting, who else did you see there? She either says, you know, they, that was a long time ago, they're all dead, or they were masked. You know, there are names I think that she has to give them because they've got their teeth into those names. But when they really fish with her, she stoles them. That indicates a, a fair amount of, of savvy and also, yeah, compassion, that she didn't want to have anybody else have to deal with, with what she was going through. Lilius died in prison before being found guilty, but because she confessed to being a witch, she was denied a church burial. They had this idea that they could come back to life through the devil, essentially, and that if you didn't get rid of the body, you were leaving yourself open to the devil coming back and wreaking havoc. They take her to the borough boundaries, and they bury her between the low tide mark and the high tide mark, and they put a great stone over her grave. In 2014, historian and BBC presenter Louise Yeoman went on a mission to find Lilius's grave. Off I go, squelching into the mud, thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh boy, I don't know what I'm doing. And then suddenly I saw in this group of stones, that stone is rectangular. Doesn't look like any other beach stone. And it was covered in seaweed. With renewed interest in Lilius's tragic story, forensic artists at the University of Dundee reconstructed Lilius's face. So we went to Dr Christopher Wren at Dundee and Christopher brought back her face. So I said to him, Christopher, accused witches were ordinary people. And I said, could you just do her as a modern, normal, old faith lady? And, you know, he did. He, I think he gave her a wee perm. And, you know, you could just imagine her sitting next to you on the bus, maybe with a wee dog. Lilius was just one of thousands of women who suffered horrible deaths after being accused of witchcraft. And Scottish campaigners say it's time to reckon with this forgotten and shameful episode in their country's history. Now the Scottish government says it's considering issuing a pardon for those accused of witchcraft and an apology for what happened to people like Lilius. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, is it time to pardon Scotland's so-called witches? Libby 
Brooks, you're the Guardian Scotland correspondent and you've been following the campaign to get women who were accused of witchcraft hundreds of years ago finally pardoned by the Scottish government. When did this campaign begin? Well, we've seen activity around this for about a decade now, oftentimes in in local areas where witch hunting was especially rife, for example, in, in Fife. But now the the leading campaign, Witches of Scotland, and what they are wanting is a pardon for all of those who were convicted of witchcraft, an apology for all those accused and convicted, and also a national memorial, so some sort of remembrance and acknowledgement. When Claire and I started to talk about it, Claire was really motivated by the fact that there are no statues or memorials, like official ones in Scotland, to what happened. Zoe Vendatotsi co-founded Witches of Scotland with Claire Mitchell QC. There's a very small plaque on the wall in Edinburgh um, up near the castle called the Witches Well. It doesn't record the amount of people that were accused and it actually records them as words to the effect of this is to mark the spot where witches were burned, some were good and some were evil. And Claire was, was immediately struck with the idea of, well, they weren't witches. So I think that's what kind of started to move things along for her. And then when we met and she just told me, first of all, about the figures. So there was around about 4,000 people accused, men and women, and two and a half thousand or thereabouts were actually executed. Then I just started to think, God, those numbers are huge. And for a population in Scotland that was round about a million at the time, that's a really high proportion. And it's something that because we don't talk about it, it makes me think, well, why don't we talk about it? And so that made me curious. We are talking about something that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Why does it warrant attention from the Scottish government now, do you think? Well, because although it was hundreds of years ago, and we do agree with that, we don't believe that there's a time limit on justice. We think that this was a terrible thing that happened in Scotland's past. And of course, we don't believe that we personally now in the contemporary age in Scotland are directly responsible for what happened. However, we do think there are contemporary parallels. There are people that are being accused of witchcraft in various countries in the world just now. And we think it's important for us to look at our past, to understand it, to make peace with it so that we aren't doomed to then repeat it as the saying goes, but also to signal to those countries where there is an issue that it's not acceptable and that it's not something that should be happening. Libby, how has the Scottish Government responded to the Witches of Scotland campaign? Well, we know at the moment that Holyrood's Petitions Committee is currently reviewing a a petition that has been lodged by the Witches of Scotland campaign around this this notion of, of a pardon and a memorial. We've also been hearing about a member's bill which is being put forward by an SNP MSP Natalie Don, and that uh, is is again sort of talking to this this plan for an apology. There have been some reports that that Nicola Sturgeon herself might actually issue an apology as soon as as March the eighth on International Women's Day. And let's let's keep in mind as well that this this campaign is is not only sort of affecting Holyrood and, and looking at how the Scottish government can respond. Uh, for example, there were reports that the Church of Scotland is considering issuing an apology for its role in the witch hunts. Obviously, the the church played a really big part in this through its sort of internal church courts that were established to deal with so-called ungodliness at the time. And and that played a a big part in in how these women were treated. Zoe, why don't we talk about the history? Why is it so overlooked? 
I think it's it's strange. I think it's not just that it was a few hundred years ago because we talk about other things in Scotland, you know, that happened a few hundred years ago. I think that partly it's because we are not good in Scotland at claiming our own history. Uh, we don't really learn about the clearances, things like that particularly. I think it's also partly that over time, the idea of witches has become a comedic sort of trope really hasn't it that we think of Mm. witches as having kind of the green skin and the hooked nose and the pointy hat and so on and so forth because it's been it's such an easy and interesting thing to use in film and tv you know and in stories so I think that witches has kind of changed into this kind of laughable risable figure of fun and we lost the actual meaning of what it meant for people to be accused of being witches and in Scotland certainly we think first or we certainly did until this campaign about the Salem witches as being of much more relevance and a much bigger issue than the witch trials were in Scotland. But we know from speaking to people in Salem that when Scots go to the to the big museum in Salem, they they say, oh, tell me, tell me about the, what happened in Salem. Tell me all about what happened with the witch trials here. And the education staff there say, well, do you not know about what happened in your own country? It was far worse in Scotland. We think people have always believed in harmful magic, always believed in witches. Louise Yeoman is a historian in Scotland. Always believed they've had neighbours who, you know, might be able to steal the milk from their cows, might be able to harm them, might be able to change into hares. She worked as a manuscripts curator at the National Library of Scotland before becoming a producer and presenter on BBC Radio Scotland. She says those early folk beliefs about witchcraft began to take on religious significance when the country was still primarily Catholic, well before the Scottish Reformation of the mid-1500s. So the idea of satanic witchcraft, that witches make a pact with the devil, is already there. In fact, he's quite a Catholic devil. You make a pact with the devil, then he makes you renounce the seven sacraments and the Blessed Virgin Mary. But with the arrival of Protestantism, the narrative changed again. In 1560, the Scottish Parliament declared the country was Protestant and just three years later passed the Scottish Witchcraft Act, making the practice of witchcraft and consulting with witches capital offences. After the Reformation, the devil gets with the programme. He knows there aren't seven sacraments and who cares about the Virgin Mary? He just makes you renounce your baptism. So, strangely, he becomes a very Protestant devil. Convenient. Convenient, yes. So, after the Reformation, we actually get a law which makes it not just a church offence to conduct witchcraft, to be a witch. Okay, it becomes a secular offence. The secular authorities can, can deal with it. How did the mythology around witchcraft develop? So, you have... An elite literature of what we call demonologies, most famous ones, the Malleus Maleficarum, the Hammer of the Witches. This is considered like a science. King James VI writes a demonology. People have very real fears of the devil, and they really believe that people who are witches who take powers from the devil can come and harm them, can kill them, can make them sick, can make them lose their minds, can kill their children. So they're very, very afraid of witches. Louise, as you say, this kind of witch huntry comes right from the top. And King James VI wrote an entire book on demonology, just stirring up the panic. He went on to sanction many witch trials. Why was he so obsessed with witches? 
James has a lot of problems fetching his bride, Anna of Denmark, from Scandinavia to Scotland. There are storms, as we, we know now from other historians' work, there are witch trials in Denmark, you know, news of which comes comes to Scotland. So James thinks witches have been trying to kill his queen, Anna, and then he thinks they've been trying to kill him. And there's been this huge conspiracy with his flashy, disreputable, unstable cousin, Francis Earl of Bothwell, at the top of it. And he thinks he's got together a conspiracy of witches to try and kill James so he can be king. And once the king believes that and goes, wow, there's been a huge magical conspiracy against me, he's naturally very interested in it. He believes in witchcraft. He pushes it. Although later, later when he comes down to England, he seems to have gone past that phase. He doesn't seem to be scared of witches anymore. But when he comes to England, we're very soon into the famous gunpowder plot. And James seems to be far more worried about Catholic people than about witches. Okay, so someone accused of witchcraft, accused of having met with the devil. What exactly is it that they're said to have done? Well, first of all, it's going to be that, you know, you promise to serve the devil. And you put your hand on your head and your other hand on the sole of at least one of your feet. And you swore yourself away to the devil and you renounced your baptism. And you took a new name from the devil. And then the devil, if you're a woman, had sex with you to seal the deal. And then he bit you or nipped you and gave you a witch's mark, which is an insensible mark. And then the devil, you know, gave you powers to do all kinds of horrible, horrible things to your neighbour because hurting people delights him. When someone was accused of witchcraft, what would happen to them? Once you're arrested, you're going to be put in a very nasty cell uh, in a Tolbooth Scottish a Scottish sort of borough prison, or even in a tiny room in a, a church spire. Certainly in the early parts of the witch hunt, you're likely to be stripped absolutely naked. You know, in a society where women are really not, not even going to be showing their ankles, you're going to be stripped naked in front of men, and they will shave all your bodily hair off. And they will take these several inch long pins, and they'll stick them into you. You know, that's to find the devil's mark. But the main way they make people confess is sleep deprivation. And sleep deprivation, even nowadays, makes people confess incredibly effective. So once you're arrested and your whole community turns against you and you're isolated from all your friends and family, it's incredible cruelty. Presumably these women then put on trial for witchcraft. And what happens to them if they are found guilty? If they're found guilty, then the normal thing is a great pyre will be built and a stake put in the in the middle of it you're usually tied to the stake or chained to the stake and then the hangman will strangle you uh, and then your body will be burnt to ashes Louise you worked on a survey that looked at what kinds of people were accused of witchcraft what did you find so the survey of Scottish witchcraft at Edinburgh University looked into what we could find out about accused witches in Scotland. 84% of those accused were women, 15% men, 1% we don't know. About two thirds of people accused 
we're over 40. And it's very hard to do class in an early modern world. But we can say, you know, again, sort of about two thirds of people are in the middle. 6% gentry, tiny amount of gentry accused, though you could be accused right up to being an earl. And, uh, you know, also not so many of the really, really dirt poor people, the very poor people, you know, people who might be, be homeless or vagrants. So it's, it's mostly, I mean, you just have to say ordinary people. And was there a particular kind of woman who could find themselves accused of witchcraft? What would make you more vulnerable to that charge? Well, in what we call the big chain hunts, anyone can be accused. Because the idea is there have been big witches' meetings, big witches' sabbaths, maybe even hundreds of people there. And people who are being tortured are being asked name names, name names, name names. There'll come a point where they'll just name anybody. But outside of these big hunts, and here I'm drawing on Dr. Sierra Dye of Guelph University, there are stereotypes about how women should be and how women shouldn't be. How you shouldn't be? Well, you shouldn't be mouthy. You shouldn't be putting it about a bit. You should be being very chaste and modest and, oh, you shouldn't be speaking very much. And if you are speaking, you should be nice. But the, the stereotype is women, they're sex crazed. They love it. Particularly those older women who are not really getting it. So if the devil came round and he offered it, well, they'd be up for it, wouldn't they? So if you get the reputation of being a bad woman, you're much more likely to fit the witch stereotype. So that's part of it. But, you know, that's not enough in itself. You know, what gets you the witch trial, you know, it's the point at which they think your words are efficacious. Your words are powerful. Your words have effect. That's the point at which, you know, I've had a quarrel with you and I say, I hope you fall off your ladder and break your arm. How you fall off your ladder and break your arm? Well, maybe the first time you think, mm, okay. That could have been a coincidence, but, you know, then, you know, I fall out with another neighbour and I say, I hope your cow dies. Your cow dies. Uh-oh. At this point, I am moving towards getting a witch reputation. bit about one of the cases where an argument like that would have landed a woman being branded a witch well there's there's a favorite one which you know i've come across and dr julian goodair is is working on it this is margaret barclay in Irvine, and she has a falling out with her brother-in-law who's called her a thief and he's a ship owner and margaret is just not having this I think she took her headdress off and got down on her knees and she cursed her brother-in-law. She says, God, let never sea nor salt water bear them above that injure at me, but that the partons eat them in the bottom of the sea. The partons are crabs. And let the crabs eat him on the bottom of the sea. And then the bad news is her brother-in-law's ship sank and the provost of the borough was on it. So all these important men from her borough are on that ship mm. and it sinks after she is believed to have given that curse. And, well, at that point, what are you going to do? You're not getting out of that one. Game over. Never, never strike a curse again. I think we're all familiar with the idea that women who were healers at the time, who maybe used herbal medicines, were often accused of being witches. Is that true? No, only 4%. 
The survey of Scottish witchcraft found that, and although they're so few, they're the cases everyone loves, and they just take up such enormous bandwidth, and they're so fascinating. I mean, well, who doesn't want to know the words by which you cure a sick child? And so people have tended to focus on these cases, even though they're only a tiny, tiny proportion of the whole. If you're accused of being a witch, it sounds like you'd be in a desperate, desperate situation. Is there anything you could try and do to save yourself? There's a woman called Margaret Aitken who is accused of being a witch and she confesses and she suddenly hits on this way to stay alive. It's always worth trying to stay alive, that little bit extra. You never know. You might see a chance to escape. People might change their minds. And this is a time when they believe there has been huge witches' Sabbaths with hundreds of people. And she says, yeah, I was there. I know these people, I can find them. I can find them by looking at them. And people are brought in front of her and she goes, yeah, she's a witch. She's not. He's a witch. He's not. And the people in Glasgow, there's certainly some people who don't trust the ministry there. And they think, yeah, we don't believe this. And what they do is they bring people back the next day in different outfits. You know, people she'd said were guilty. She doesn't recognise them in different clothes. And at that point they go, uh-oh, we shouldn't have done this. And the Glasgow witch hunt grinds to a complete halt. And of course, Margaret's taken away and she's finally executed. But, you know, how many people did she kill? Why and when did the fervour for witch trials fade? Well, it starts to fade towards the, the end of the the 17th century amongst the elite. And this is amongst the elite, okay? This is the legal gentlemen who are going... That conviction is not safe. Evidence under torture? Oh, no, that's not safe. They gradually stop accepting the evidence and giving commissions to carry out witch trials. And in the end, of course, the Witchcraft Act gets repealed and we get this new Witchcraft Act which says, well, if you're being a, saying you're a witch and giving out you have magical powers, you're a fraud and you're abusing the people and we're going to try you and fine you for that. But ordinary people... You know, they, they've had all this stuff preached to them. They've got with the programme. They believe in the devil. They believe this for much longer. And I see cases of witch belief way into the 19th century. You know, particularly in sort of highland areas, you know, I see belief that women could turn into hens. So witch belief continues for a long time after the witch hunts. Coming up, what the horrors of Scotland's witch hunts can teach us now. We know that throughout history, women's lives and contributions have been overlooked or forgotten. Zoe, why do you think that is? And why is it so important to have these lives remembered in some way? Well, I think it's the it's the same old, same old, isn't it? Is that you know it's it's structurally we're we're leaning towards the power of men, and that's not been fixed now, and that's partly what drives Claire and I. And we think it's really important that 
all these sorts of things in the past are marked, you know, so that people can learn from it and people know what actually happened in Scotland's past. You know, and it's a similar way. Claire and I were really motivated by what happened with Black Lives Matter. We were also motivated by um, recent attempts that are being made and are ongoing for Scotland to reckon with its, its past and its involvement and the benefits they gained from the transatlantic slave trade. We think it's really important that those parts of Scotland's past, for good or for bad, are talked about and marked so that we know not to make the same mistakes again. Well, that work is paying off. The campaign is now getting really prominent attention and you've made 50 episodes as we speak of your podcast, Witches of Scotland. What's the reaction been like? It's been overwhelmingly positive. The vast, vast majority of people that listen to it or then, you know, once they get to know about what the campaign is, really understand the motivation for doing it. We do get the odd person and I would say they were, they're generally men, they're generally older men who think that it's stupid, it's a waste of time. You know, we occasionally get, you know, well, Scotland's got enough to focus on with COVID. Why are you wasting time and money on this? To which Claire and I would say, well, it's our time. We're not getting paid for it. And the beauty of living in a democracy is that any of us can campaign for whatever we believe strongly in. We're complex people, so we can care about lots of things at the same time. After speaking to a lot of the experts that you have in the last couple of years, have you noticed any parallels that compare with society now? I think definitely there is an unfortunate innate sense that humans sometimes have when we go through difficult times of trying to find somebody to blame. So if we look now at sort of parallels of some sections of society who find it very problematic with people trying to make their way to um, to Britain, say by water, um, and it would be described as, as their movement being illegal. I think that that's a similar sort of an urge that people, some people in society have. So I think that that side of us sadly is there and it's something that we need to learn to, to be better about. Libby, we've been hearing about the terrible way that those women accused of witchcraft were treated by the church and the state in Scotland. But this was, it was a long time ago. So why do you think there is a campaign for them to be pardoned now? There's a desire to confront the, the reality of it. The sorts of things that these women had to go through, the prolonged interrogations, the sexual humiliation, sleep deprivation, they suffered really excruciating torture. And, and so I think there's, there's just a, a desire to, I suppose, just, just be, be real about what, what was done in this country. I also wonder if it's to do with a changing mood around Me Too, one of the things that I've experienced in my reporting of, of Me Too and campaigns around sexual violence lately is a real generational frustration. Older women saying, you know, this is extraordinary that, that nothing has changed since I was a, a young girl, um, you know, from one decade to the next. Now we're talking about that profound frustration that is like from one, you know, a set one century to the next Libby, in, in covering this campaign, like, is there anything that you've learned or think resonates in the modern world? I think I think there's there's so much that that resonates um, for the the culture and and society that we're living through today. Um, we look back through history, and there can be a tendency to feel rather superior or pleased with ourselves about the progress that that we've made. But I think if you look at the parallels around the the spread of misinformation, uh, scapegoating of certain groups, conspiracy theories, uh, the, the way that elites manage all of these things uh, for their own benefits. I don't, I don't know that we have moved on that far. 
Libby, thank you so much. Thanks, Nishin. That was Libby Brooks, Louise Yeoman and Zoe Vendatotsi. My thanks to them. To follow Libby's reporting on the Witches of Scotland campaign, do head to theguardian.com. You can also read about the Catalan Parliament's decision last month to pardon those executed for witchcraft. And to find out more about the history, tune into the Witches of Scotland podcast or hear more from Louise on the BBC's Witch Hunt from wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Cassin. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.